my mission call was to Spain, Barcelona, and I was told to prepare to teach the, the people there in the Spanish language. But that wasn't the only language that I used. Alma 13:22, Yea, and the voice of the Lord by the mouth of angels doth declare it unto all nations. Spain was a very diverse country in terms of its population, well, and its culture and its history. There's a reason it was the crossroads of Europe for so long. Uh, it's about the size of Nevada, but with ten times the population. And there was one group of people that was not likely to listen. That was the Spaniards. Pretty much every other group would stop and actually give us the time of day, and those were the people that we ended up teaching. I couldn't teach somebody that wouldn't listen to us. And that uh, kind of became, I wouldn't necessarily say a point of conflict, but it was a point of learning uh, for myself and for one of the other members in, in the area. This is Welcome to the Faro, episode 12, Halfway There. The branch mission leader in Albacete was a man named Martin. Um, you know, older Spaniard, I wouldn't put him in the CSG camp. That was probably reserved for the uh, branch president, Moya, who was a great man. I had tons of respect for him. Now, Martin was, uh, you know, more on the average blue-collar side, a little bit rough around the edges, um, showed that he could have a temper. And, uh, you know, he was willing to work with the missionaries on, on missionary work. He was diligent about having correlation and, you know, asking us to participate in sacrament meeting, which was kind of a frequent thing for us. That branch was so small that we often spoke in sacrament just to help kind of round out the program. By the way, I apologize for background noise. Uh, it's been one of those weeks, and I haven't been able to get a whole lot of recording done. And I've got to spend a whole lot of time sitting in a truck while I get loaded at a very slow facility, so uh, you're hearing the truck idle in the background. Anyway, we would show up to correlation meeting with Martine and uh, give him the report on who we'd found for the week, and that way we could coordinate if we needed a member to show up to be there with us for a lesson whether it was somebody we thought could fellowship well or if, it, if we'd found you know, a, a single woman, we weren't, you know, we weren't able to go into those teaching situations with just us and them. We'd have to have somebody else with us. And as we were going over the list one week, we'd found about seven or eight people that we had appointments with. And he would ask about them. We'd tell him, oh, we met, we met them here. They're from this place. This is how we found them. And one day after we'd gone through the list, you know, he'd noticed that pretty much everybody was from South America or West Africa. And he looked at it and he said, I don't see any Spaniards on this list. And right now in 2020, with things as racially charged as they are throughout the world, that's probably going to land a little bit different than it did back then. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm certainly not pointing fingers at Martin and accusing him of racism or anything like that. You know, he he was interested in finding his fellow countrymen because you know he wanted he wanted the locals to build up the church in Spain. Uh, the thing with people coming in from other countries is that they tended to be transient, and even if they did get baptized, they'd often leave the area, and the branch itself wouldn't get stronger. And you know, so I I took that for what it was. But I told him, I said, well, when a Spaniard listens to me, I'll teach him. 
you know, that, that was my, my stance on that issue. You know, obviously I couldn't force anybody to listen to me. Obviously I was stopping everybody and, you know, we met some interesting characters, but you know, the, the story of my mission was the fact that Spaniards by and large were, were done with religion. We even had a couple in Albacete that as Evenhouse and I were walking around the area, we, we walked by this restaurant and these two guys like ran out to stop us. So like, say, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? We're like, we're missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they were trying to tell us to go home because it was a, it was a pointless endeavor. You know, the, the idea of, of God in Spain is muy antiguo. It's very old. It's like, yeah, we know. It's not what gives the idea of validity. You know, we do have a message we'd like to share with you. And they didn't want to hear it. You know, but we ran into that pretty frequently. You got, you know, the trolling gomberos that as you walk by, they'd say, oh, me cago en Dios, Dios no existe. They'd, they'd say, you know, offensive things or, or whatever. It was just, it came with the territory. And we understood that. It didn't affect our testimonies, even if, you know, the, uh, the, the repetition of it was, was quite an annoying or tiresome. In the end, it was my pleasure to comply with the part of my calling to teach people in Spain in the Spanish language. But the greater part of my joy was to teach people in Spain, and I would teach whoever listened in whatever language I could use to communicate with them. Um, oftentimes in Albacete, that was South Americans, West Africans, and uh, a fair amount of Romanians actually ended up there. Um, Albacete was agrarian adjacent, and so you'd have a lot of of migrant workers that would come in year-round because even in the winter apparently there were harvests to do and that was what our Paraguayan friends were there to do. There were three of them at first. Their names were Oscar, Carlos, and Daniel. Oscar was a member of the church and a returned missionary. He'd served in Chile and the other two weren't members um, Daniel was, I think, the least interested, but Carlos and Oscar were best friends, childhood friends, going way, way back, and Oscar, you know, wanted to get a good footing in Spain. Um, economically, things were really hard in Paraguay, and he and his buddies had bought tickets to Spain to look for work with the expectation that they would be able to save up enough money to bring their wives and their girlfriends over. Oscar was married, he was, you know, even sealed. Um, I can't remember if Carlos was married to his girlfriend. I, I feel like we ended up having to teach him, like, look, when, when she gets here um, and you're baptized, you know, the law of chastity dictates that you guys don't live together unless you get married. And so, you know, get your, get your paperwork in order, do whatever you got to do. But, you know, if, if you're serious about doing this, you need to be serious about that commitment. Things moved very quickly at first with them. Oscar and Carlos wanted to meet with us all the time. And we were thrilled to have somebody to teach, thrilled to have a progressing investigator, but we noticed pretty quickly that Carlos was just saying yes to whatever we taught him. And as exciting as that is, remember that I was living in a city where I had to deal with Randy on the regular. And I was not going to be that guy who baptized just to say, hey, look what I did in a hard area. That's, that's pride, that's a sin, that's destructive, and you know, like Martin said, he was concerned about 
the long-term viability of that branch of the church in that city, especially with what they'd been through. So after about the third meeting in three days, where we taught first, second, and third charlas with, with Oscar there, you know, I, I got the impression that Oscar thought that if he brought a friend to get baptized and join the church, that he would get a blessing for it and it would help him achieve his goals in, in Spain of uh, you know, financial prosperity. Um, and so we had to be very careful about you know, setting goals with Carlos and making sure that he was doing the reading on his own and that he got, you know, he, he was getting the answers to his prayers and not just, oh, I'll say yes to whatever these missionaries say and, and that'll end up working to our benefit. Yes, there are absolutely benefits and blessings that come to you know come with accepting the gospel, but assuming that they're always going to take a, a quantifiable or financial form, it's it's very very dangerous. Um, that's not why we're here on earth. That's not why we're here in the church. And while we have seen the Lord prosper saints in the past, we've also seen Him try them, because you know the ultimate question is. Are, are we going to maintain fidelity through thick or thin? Are our blessings and our prosperity a matter of spirituality or temporal things? Because if we, if we hinge our testimony on temporal things, then anytime it gets difficult, we're going to fold. So long story short, Elder Evenhouse and I, we, we taught the Paraguayos on the regular. We visited with them. We studied with them. We stopped by their home. Uh, they were living in a very crowded apartment, kind of similar to the Delethea situation in Saragossa, where I don't know how this building wasn't condemned or blown up. I'm, I'm pretty sure half of it was filled with dirt and weeds. But a couple of Romanians had moved into one place and they let the Paraguayans move in with them, started immediately overcharging them for one bedroom. And so, you know, we'd, we'd drop by and visit. We made some friends with the Romanians. One or two of them wanted to talk with us, but um, we quickly realized that the rest were kind of involved in crime and drug dealing and making things difficult for our Paraguayan friends, and that added another element of difficulty to their situation. We prayed with them often, and we just tried to make sure that that Carlos's progress was was genuine, because again, we we wanted that firm foundation in Albacete. You know, obviously, we wanted Carlos to make that individual commitment to baptism to Jesus Christ to take that with him wherever he went but we didn't want to to do anything that was going to harm the branch either now towards the end of September this is where things kind of start to get choppy in my memory only because there were so many big turbulent events that all happened at once and uh, I'd, I'd rather lay them out in terms of their significance and not worry too much about the chronological order. But I did go to Albacete at the beginning of August, meaning that the next transfer happened in the middle of September. Uh, I was coming up on my hump day, on my one-year mark, where I was halfway through with, with my 24-month mission. The transfer call came in, and I was still getting a feeling for that sense that I had as to whether I was getting transferred or something was changing. I, I felt pretty confident that I wasn't getting transferred. 
Uh, Evenhouse had kind of expressed some some desires for that. He'd been there for I think three transfers, so you know over four months, and he was worried about you know whether he was going to get sent somewhere else or not. I guess not worried, but you know, the point was that we we were kind of expecting a change, and when the transfer call came, it didn't happen. And uh, I remember getting the call from you know Elder Green in uh, in Cataroja, and he's like, yeah. Um, you know, no changes to Aldous that day, and so I relayed the news to Evenhouse, and he was sitting there on the couch by the window, and I still remember that big kind of bug-eyed look on his face, and that, that smile where he was, he had this smile, like, you could tell that he was, he was kind of bugged or annoyed, like, it was different from his regular joyous smile, and he goes, oh man, six more weeks of the Vuelta, and that was kind of a gut punch to me. And I'm like, man, I've already been here for six weeks and we haven't changed that up. We haven't stopped that habit. And so for the next couple of weeks, he and I started working on, on ways to, uh, to do work differently in Albafete. And that took us pretty close to the end of September, at which time we had, I feel like it was a stake conference in Valencia, which uh, I'm pretty sure they had kind of prior to the... Um, to the general conference that was coming up the first week of October. This is where I'm going to stop and kind of jumble up the timeline for you because October is a very full month in terms of what I'm going to record on this podcast and September is a bit of a thin one so rather than have a short episode followed by a really long one let me move up some of the details of general conference in 2004. Two of the apostles had passed away in July back when I was in Tarragona. Neil A. Maxwell, who was one of the big powerhouse apostles for so many years, and uh, Elder David B. Haight, that I want, I want to say. Uh, I don't think it was Elder Worthlin. It was, but there, I remember there were two of them, so we were going to get two new apostles at General Conference in October. Um, that ended up being Elder David A. Bednar and Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf which was a big deal, especially over there in Europe, because they're like, oh, we first you know, European apostle that we've gotten. It was, it was interesting. Uh, I remember hearing him talk, and it was like, holy cow, <laughs> they put in the Terminator as an apostle. This guy's accent is awesome. Um, you know, he, he spoke with, with a joviality and a warmth and a love and a seriousness all, all at once that just you know, compelled you to listen to whatever he was saying. Uh, Elder Bednar was much the same way, but in in a different direction. Uh, He had been the president of BYU Idaho, and I didn't know that my wife, my future wife, had just started, uh, like a month before this, her freshman year at Idaho, at BYU in uh, in Rexburg. So she didn't, you know, really get to know Elder Bednar, but just one of those interesting connections when he first spoke in conference um, you, know, you could tell that he was really overwhelmed by the gravity of, of the calling and the seriousness with which he took it but he has since proven that you know once again the Lord knows what he's doing with who he calls for these these big important callings in the church in addition to all of that this was the year that the mission teaching and study program really got a massive, massive overhaul. And the manual that has been standard for the last 15 years called Preach My Gospel was introduced. 
It was going to replace the old phone book sized missionary guide. It was going to replace the six charlas that I had just spent all of 2004 memorizing and, and passing off. And it was going to really streamline and improve the way that we taught people the gospel. Needless to say, the second year of my mission was going to be very different from the first. Off the top of my head and out of memory, I can tell you that the first thing I was impressed by was that the new lessons were a lot more linear. They made more sense. They, they laid things out in a, in a more chronological order. The old charlas started out with teaching the restoration in the first lesson, and then the second lesson was the, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith, repentance, baptism, uh, confirmation, and all that. And then the third lesson was the apostasy. And I thought, why are you teaching the apostasy two lessons after you teach the restoration? I mean, obviously you touch on it for the restoration, but you know, you, you're, you're kind of teaching it out of order. But you know, it, it worked for so many years, and then you know, the way people learned started to change, and so they, they changed the way that they, they taught this information. Fourth lesson was eternal families. Fifth lesson, from there it kind of gets muddled just because we didn't get to the fifth lesson very often, so I didn't get the chance to teach it. Instead, in Preach My Gospel, the very first lesson, the very first principle you teach is that God is our Heavenly Father. You teach people you know, who, who God is and what their connection is to Him. The fact that He has a plan, the fact that He teaches that plan through prophets, you go through a bit of the history of prophets, you know, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, Peter, the apostles, and then then you teach the apostasy, and then you teach the restoration, Joseph Smith, and the Book of Mormon. And then from there, you know, the second lesson is the uh, the plan of salvation, which you teach in between, you know, the the restoration and the third lesson, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's there's a very well ordered structure to it all that helps people to capture the big picture of it very early on in the teaching process. You know, and for me, after spending all summer learning the old system, which I was fine with, I didn't have any problem with that, there was still a great benefit to memorizing it and studying it in detail the way that I did, just because it was all the same information, it was just in a, in a different order, and I now knew that information extremely well. Uh, you know, but seeing it laid out in this new way, I was like, oh man, this is going to be so much better. It did shake up our Charla games though. We still used the OPUs from the old Charlas for the time being, uh, but instead of you know, quoting entire passages verbatim from the Charlas in, in these contests, instead we had to start organizing lesson plans and, and teaching with a visual aid, and, and we do, contest is the wrong word, but we do demonstrations of this. President would have all of us prepare a five minute version of one of the lessons and with an accompanying visual aid, and then he'd call on a companionship from one of the zones at random to to do the this uh, this presentation in front of the entire zone, and then you know, he'd give us feedback. There were times when I would do that really well, and there were times when I would do that not well, but we will save that for an episode on the summer of 2005 when uh, <laughs> when that kind of came back to bite me. The final big change of September 2004 was that my big brother Jordan was finishing his mission in Italy, just across the, the sea, Mediterranean, Balearic, whichever one of them was, was between Spain and Italy. 
I was too far from the coast for the uh, the whole hey let's send mirror signals across the sea not that you know the curve of the earth wouldn't get in the way anyhow but he had started almost a year to the day before I had so our, our missions overlapped by exactly a year and we'd swapped a few letters while we were out um, didn't really email each other but you know it was easy to send mail in Europe and uh, his mission had been very very different from mine um, probably because Italy's kind of different his mission president was was different he was actually a native Italian uh, but more just because my brother was a very different instrument in the hands of the Lord uh, if you're familiar with my brother trucker book club podcast I've talked about him he's the one that I call dr. farmer uh, he's since gotten a PhD in political philosophy and he owns 47 acres in Ohio where he grows and cultivates 90% of what he eats. Um, he's built differently, he's wired differently, he's driven differently, and he works very differently with other people. Um, in his 24 months in Italy, 22, he had two months of Italian in the MTC. In his 22 months, he served in 14 different areas. Or maybe it wasn't 14 different areas, because I know he got kind of sent back to areas but he was, he was the cleanup crew. He was the guy that his mission president sent in to, to straighten out a lazy companion or, or what have you. Um, he trained like three times. Uh, in my mission, you trained probably once. <laughs> Elder Gordon, he never trained. Shocker. Um, he, was, he was just that diligent and hardworking and there were times when I felt like I I had to kind of live up to that there was like a legacy or something and I was eventually able to kind of shake that feeling off just because you know a mission is is a little bit more personal than that you know the the Lord knows what he needs you for you don't need to to be the same type of missionary as somebody else you still need to be obedient you still need to live up to your calling and and the you know, divinity that's kind of entrusted to you but you don't need to do it exactly the same way you don't need to hold the same callings you know as a missionary you don't need to be oh i gotta be a district leader i gotta be a zone leader oh i gotta be an ayudante no you don't elder campbell shut up so i didn't i didn't need to follow his path exactly i just knew that i, I still wanted to be diligent president watson wasn't going to midnight transfer me anywhere the way that President Caruso did for my brother um, you know that wasn't the point that wasn't what was needed for the areas under President Watson's stewardship and it wasn't what I was needed for um, but I did have a great amount of respect for my brother and and I learned a great deal from his example and and in many ways I did try to emulate his his diligence his focus his attention to detail um, you know that was, I guess, part of what fueled me to to do so well with the Novels because it was something that I could I could measure, I could show, like this is how hard I worked on this thing. I I know that I'm progressing because I'm doing this, this, this. You know, it, it was it was a very helpful driving force for me. So he was wrapping up his mission. You could tell he was really you know emotional about it. Um, I think I wrote him a, a letter or two near the end I probably recorded a cassette tape for him when 
when he finished up, my parents went to pick him up, and uh, he gave me a, a call on the, on our companionship phone. My, you know, I wasn't going to talk to my parents, but you know, there was no rule against my brother calling me, especially on on his way out. And I'm pretty sure I cleared that with President, just to be in compliance with the mission rules. But he called me that night, well, one Friday night, while we were over at Guadalupe's house, having that that Friday fiesta that we had with her and Angelita and their families, and. I remember getting the call and I was like, oh, it's my brother. You know, he's, he's calling me from Italy and chit-chatting. He's like, you were talking really, really fast. I was like, yeah, it's how I speak Spanish over here. Uh, but I, I got to talk to him and, you know, congratulate him on a mission well served and you know, wish him well as he went home. He didn't get married or engaged quite as fast as Elder Higley had, but he didn't waste any time either. <laughs> but uh, that shocker kind of came in a future episode, I guess we'll cover that. So that closes out September and part of early October, but keep your seatbelts buckled because things are just starting to get really interesting. And next week, I'm going to share some of my favorite stories of the mission with you. Until then, brothers and sisters, keep the faith.